Hitler, who said, no, no, Stalin is my great enemy. We have got to capture Stalingrad. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name's Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and I'm continuing my chat today with Gordon Corrigan who is an acclaimed historian and former soldier so he gives an interesting perspective to perhaps the biggest battle of the Second World War not in terms of scale and size but but probably in terms of impact in, in that it helped to shape the modern world and it's Gordon's conjecture that the Battle of Stalingrad had it gone the other way and the Nazis had either not engaged in the battle or had somehow won the battle then we could be living in a completely different world. So we do talk about that, we have a couple of tangents into Ukraine. So I do hope you can indulge us on that. They don't take a huge amount of time. I am conscious that you may go elsewhere for your Ukraine news, but Gordon gives a really interesting perspective because he is a former soldier and is an acclaimed historian. So that completes our discussion of three moments that are tipping points in history that are based on the books that Gordon's written. And so I'll be putting links in there. And then Gordon also, he, t he chats about his views on Ukraine. But he if you want to hear more on him for that, I'm also going to put a link in the show notes for a video he's done on his website. So you can get to that as well. Now, elsewhere aspects of history, I'm not sure if you're aware, but it is the 110th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. And... On our website, we have a couple of articles. Uh, one is by a historian who's actually a descendant of the chief helmsman of the Titanic. The historian is Simon Medhurst, and he writes about why we're still fascinated by the Titanic. And then also, we've got a piece going up from Giles Milton, who writes about one particular survivor who employed a unique survival device that I would recommend to anyone and I'm not going to say any more have a look at our website go to the article section you can't miss it by Giles Milton and then finally um, we've got a, a, a slightly longer piece to read written by the wonderful historian Kate Vigors she's written a definitive book really on the women of the special operations executive during the second world war and she's written a a, a a really interesting piece which i'll also put a link in for um if you are listening and enjoying these please 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 subscribe i would really appreciate it it's a lot of effort goes into putting these and if if you just hit the subscribe button it would be massively appreciated and if you want to leave a nice review, that would be amazing as well, but I'm not going to force you. Uh, you can get hold of me on the Twitter. I'm at OllieWCQ. But without further ado, I'm going to hand you over to me talking with Gordon Corrigan about the Battle of Stalingrad and Tipping Point in History.
so next is is I, I would say that this is the big one. This might be one of the most famous battles of all time. Uh, and it's the Battle of Stalingrad. And it's it's funny because we're talking and there's a book right behind you that's quite well known by Anthony Beaver. Oh, yes. Stalingrad. Yes. Yes. Uh, strategically placed. Now, you've written this um, tipping point on Stalingrad in it's 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 a short and covers but it does cover the whole uh, of operation barbarossa and the uh, germans getting stuck in stalingrad and, and beyond so let's let's i think a lot of people i i it's difficult to assume what our listeners are thinking or, or, or what their knowledge is but you know we have the nazi soviet pact which i don't think that many people know about really and it's worth, I think, covering that before we go into Barbarossa and the rest. Yeah, well, we need to remember that um, in the in the 20s, the two pariahs, if you like, were Germany, uh, defeated in the First World War and shackled by Versailles, uh, and the USSR, uh, which nobody, I think the British were one of the few people to actually recognise the USSR, uh, because the British recognized de facto, if you're in charge of a country, however much we may dislike you, you are the government. And the Americans take a different view. They say de jure, if, if we don't think you're the legitimate government, we won't recognize it. So they, so they were the two pariahs. And um, long before the rise of Nazism, uh, I mean, the Germans had a, an, because Versailles forbade them from having an air force or tanks, they had a tank training area in Kazan, which is in Siberia. And I've been there. And, and nobody can tell me exactly where it was. <laughs> but And the deal was that the Germans could experiment with tanks in Kazan in the Siberia, w- well away from the, <laughs> from the British or the Americans. Um, this was in or, the 1920s? Or, yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah, I, didn't, yeah. I had no idea. I know, most people don't. Um, um, when did you go to Siberia? Was it, it wasn't in winter. Oh, I've been going to Siberia for crikey, about 12 years, I suppose, each year. I do an awful lot of work. And, and, I mean, I'm currently... A kept man because all my overseas stuff has been cancelled. Um, I mean, we had COVID, two years, everything cancelled. Uh, then out of COVID, wonderful, full program. I mean, I should now be in Kazakhstan today. I'm not uh, because Mr. Putin then goes and invades Ukraine, so everything's cancelled again. So um, up until COVID, I had been going to Siberia uh, just about every year for twelve years or so. Wow. Uh, so, so I know the I know the area pretty well. Amazing. Um, so, so that and the other thing that the Germans, of course, wanted to do was to, to have an air force. They weren't allowed to have an air force, uh, so they did quite a lot in Sweden. Uh, the Swedes allowed them to train pilots and practice on air force. And then, of course, they had they had the uh, which most people do know about great gliding clubs, and that taught young Germans a bit about airmanship and, and all the rest of it. So they got on pretty well, um, and that was long before the the Nazis turned up. Um, then you've got uh, Hitler um, not seizing power, as people say. He was voted in by an election that was as fair as we can we can tell. Um, and they, the National Socialists, had this this um, uh, ideological dislike of of communism, of Bolshevism. And indeed, everybody else was terrified of. Nobody was terrified of the Nazis to begin with. It was Bolshevism that they were terrified about. And I have often thought that if the Great Depression of 1929 hadn't happened, 
uh, and of course destroyed, well, first of all, the Austrian economy and then the German economy, which then gave rise to extreme nationalism, that if that hadn't happened, then the Weimar Republic might well have survived, which was democratic. And the Second World War would still have happened, but it would be France, Britain and Germany against the USSR because everybody was terrified of Bolshevism. Anyway, that didn't happen. So these two, Germany and Russia, USSR, are actually getting on together. When the National Socialists come into power, then there's this ideological hatred of communism and also a wish, which has long been a German aim, not just Nazi, goes back, way back, goes back to um, Friedrich the Great, if you like, wanting to expand, expand to the East, Lebensraum, as they call it, you know, living room. So they're always going to have a crack at, uh, at the USSR. Now, the, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, as it's called, Molotov was the foreign minister of the USSR, Ribbentrop was the um, foreign minister of Germany. Uh, the pact, um, the bits that were in the open that everybody knew about, said that um, Russia will provide raw materials, mainly oil, oil and wheat, um, and in return, Germany will export to them manufactured goods. And that was a pretty good deal. The secret clauses, which of course weren't openly known to, said that in due course, the USSR and Germany would divide Poland between them. Because again, what we've got to remember is that 1722, Poland disappears. It's divided between Russia, um, Prussia and Austria. And it doesn't reappear again until it's reconstituted after the First World War. So it disappears for nearly 200 years. So there is this sort of Russian idea that actually large parts of the Polish Empire, as it was then, including, I may say, Ukraine, um, and German view as well, is that really Poland doesn't exist. Poland belongs to us. So the, there was, uh, this was the secret clause. Um, and that was, that worked. I mean, right up um, really until, really until Barbarossa, until the Germans did invade in, in June 41, uh, the trains were still coming down from Russia, uh, delivering raw materials. Um, but it was always, uh, it was always going to happen. It was always the, the intention of the Germans, I think, to, to invade Russia. Um, and and that is that is what they did. And of course, when they invaded Poland, um, on a few couple of weeks later, the Russians invade Poland from the east and they divide Poland between them. The British cabinet is now in a bit of a quandary because the British cabinet, or the British rather, the British government, has given a guarantee um, of its integrity, not territorial integrity, integrity uh, to Poland. Now that was designed to discourage the Germans, but it didn't actually mention the Germans. It said, if you are attacked, uh, we, will, we will guarantee your sovereignty. So when the Russians invaded, <laughs> I mean, the Germans invade Poland, Britain declares war. Now in come the Russians. Do we have to declare war against Russia as well? And the attorney general is summoned <laughs> and asked for his legal opinion. And he says that in his opinion, Britain need not declare war on the USSR. Now, no doubt if he'd come to a different opinion, we'd have found a different attorney general. But I mean, it, it beggars belief. Um, that is very but interesting. Of course, but that, yeah, I think it's probably not necessarily very well known about. But of course, uh, the whole business of, of going into Poland and the whole of Czechoslovakia after Sibidaten uh, was to provide a jumping off spot uh, for the invasion of, of Russia. 
So when Barbarossa happens, of course, they're going in from East Prussia, uh, they're going in from, from, from Poland, and eventually going in from Romania. Um, and of course, initially, it's a huge success. I mean, in the first six months, the Germans have advanced nearly a thousand miles. Uh, they've taken huge numbers of prisoners. Um, the Russian army, the USSR, is just totally incapable of doing anything. And the reason for that is Stalin's purge, because in 1937, Stalin, and I may say there's no evidence that I've seen that, that this was the case, but Stalin believed that the army uh, and various other organs of state were plotting against him. So he had a purge. And of the uh, members of Stavka, which was the USSR top-ranking military organization, um, nearly all of them were taken away and shot. Um, of the army and divisional commanders, something like 70% of them were taken away and either shot or jailed. Uh, of the junior officers, colonels and below, 40% went, uh, either jailed or, or imprisoned. And people like Rosakovsky, who was, <laughs> who was a general, um, he was arrested, beaten up, they broke his arm, uh, threw him in jail. And um, when the Germans actually invade and the Russians realized, Christ, we've, <laughs> we've run out of generals. He's taken out of prison. And said, terribly sorry, don't know why we beat you up, but we did. Go and command an army again. Uh, <laughs> there were quite, quite a number of these. But it took a long time for the Russians to learn. And it's very interesting looking at what the Russians are doing today, because their tactics today, these are Soviet tactics that didn't work in 1941-42. That's what they're, they're still doing. Um, but that, that's a, another matter. So the, the plan... The, the, the Germans were hoping, and they'd actually given the generals, or the gov German government had given the generals really too many, too many tasks. Um, they were expected to capture Leningrad. Again, pointless. No need to capture Leningrad. Why do you want to capture Leningrad? Just mask it. Prevent the garrison of Leningrad from interfering. St. Petersburg today. Uh, no, St. Petersburg. Yeah, it, 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 went for, it was originally St. Petersburg, 1701, Peter the Great. Uh, then um, it became Petrograd during the First World War, more Russian sounding. Then the Bolsheviks renamed it Leningrad. And now, of course, it's back to St. Petersburg. It's the same, it's the same city. Um, capture Moscow. That actually might have made a difference because if they'd been able to capture Moscow in the winter of 41, um, there were lots of people, lots of anti-Stalin people in Russia, and they might, they might just have removed them. And, and maybe the war in the East would have would have stopped. I mean, who, who knows? And they didn't, they didn't capture Moscow, as you know. Uh, but the really important thing they had to do in 1942, uh, as far as um, the generals and the government agreed on this, was to get into the Caspian, because that's where the oil was. Huge reserves of oil. There still are. Um, you know, we, we've got a pipeline running from Baku through into Turkey to the Mediterranean uh, of oil and, and gas today. It's, it's owned by the Brits and, and or mainly owned by the Brits. We've got the majority share. It's run by, by BP. Um, so huge quantities of oil. Now, the German problem, if you are waging a war which is a long war, and German statesmen and German soldiers always historically tried to go for a short war, um, you know, the, the German-Danish war over very quickly, German-Austrian war over very quickly, Franco-German war over very quickly, First World War, they'd hoped to win it in six weeks, it didn't. Um, and one of the things that they didn't have was enough oil. The only oil they could get 
was Romanian oil. And Romanian oil wasn't very high quality and there wasn't all that much of it. But if they could get into the Caspian, huge quantity, but that would have kept German industry going forever. So the idea was get over the Dom, um, which sort of runs like that, hit the Volga, turn right, down into the Caspian, get the oil, bingo. Um, and they could have, the German Navy could have shipped that uh, across the Black Sea uh, to, to Romania and then into Germany, or it could be taken back by land, whichever. So that was what they wanted to do, case blue, or foul bleu, as they called it. And that was totally sensible. It's exactly what they should have been doing. But as they hit the Volga, there was a town called Stalingrad. Stalingrad wasn't terribly important. It had a tank factory. Um, the Germans had already cut off the railway to Moscow. Uh, the Germans could prevent the Russians from using the Volga. So Stalingrad was nothing. And the generals said, well, we just mask it. Mm, Leave a bypass of it and some artillery. Yeah, but you, you've got to put somebody there to prevent them attacking your lines of communication. But you don't need to put very much there. A couple of divisions, some artillery, some air force, and everybody else head down for the Caspian. This wasn't acceptable to the government, to, to presumably to Hitler, who said, no, no, Stalin is my great enemy. We have got to capture Stalingrad. So it's the name of the city is too tempting for Hitler. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's nonsense. Um, and the general said, no, 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 this is not what we do. Now, the German army never wanted to get bogged down in siege warfare. It's not what they were good at. It's not what they were trained for. It was a brilliant army. Militarily, it's without question the, the finest army in the Second World War, without question. Best led, best trained, and in most cases, best equipped. Perhaps not in field artillery, but in most things. Anyway, um, that's not what they wanted to do. Uh, they, they were well trained to using the infantry, the artillery, the armor, um, the engineers and the air. Blitzkrieg, they didn't call it Blitzkrieg, it was coined by the French, but um, you know that, that's what they did. Um, and they did not want to get bogged down in siege warfare, but they were told they had to. So that meant that the Sixth Army um, under Paulus and most of the Fourth Panzer Army, uh, now instead of heading down with um, Army Group A, Army Group B rather, uh, to the Caspian, they were having to take Stalingrad. And ultimately, they couldn't because the Russians were learning. And what the Russians did when uh, Stalingrad starts, well, the attacks on Stalingrad by the Germans start, they just feed in enough troops to, to hold the Germans back. While behind the lines, they're amassing huge, massive men. And of course, ultimately, um, Operation Uranus, they cut through the German lines and they encircle the Sixth Army. Now, they don't try to cut through the Germans. They knew they couldn't do that. But the Germans had had to use allied contingents on the front. Now, what happened was when, they, when the Germans eventually, uh, initially, march on into Russia, Barbarossa, they take with them allied contingents. And they, so they've got um, an Italian corps, they've got Romanians, they've got, they've got um, Hungarians. And they are there really to show the world that this isn't just a German thing. This is a European crusade against Bolshevism. That's what they're wanting to do. The trouble is, as they get deeper and deeper into the USSR, the front gets wide. It's rather like a, a sort of trumpet. You know, you start off at the mouthpiece and as you go in, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. 
So eventually they're holding a front of about 2000 miles and they have to use these allied contingents. So you've got the, the German sixth army and part of the fourth panzer army. Uh, and to the north of them, there's the third Romanian army. And to the south of them is the fourth Romanian army. And then above the third Romanian army, there's the Italians. Now, the Germans have tried to equip them and train them to German standards, but they, they just weren't able to do it. Uh, one of the problems with uh, one of the tank regiments, Romanian tank regiments, was that during the winter, mice had got in and they'd chewed the wires. And so most of the tanks wouldn't go. Um, they didn't have enough anti-tank weapons. Each, each Allied army was covering a frontage of about 100 miles. We're sort of seeing that today with with the odd. Uh, I, I was reading some Twitter thread. I got a bit carried away and was uh, reading about Russian trucks. The tires aren't being looked after, so they're all the oil is in the yeah. in the tires isn't working. Yeah, or something. There's, there's no maintenance. They're, mm. they're not maintaining. I mean, this is they're back to the almost to the old sort of Soviet system. Uh, there's huge loss of morale. Um, over a quarter of the Russian army are still conscripts, about 250,000 other conscripts. Yeah. Uh, they're trying desperately to go to completely contractiki, as they call them, regular soldiers. But the army is not a popular um, career, uh, not if you're another rank um, in, in, in Russia. Um, Sorry, so, I interrupted you. Uh, um, I, and I, I will ask you one other Ukrainian question. But um, yes, yeah, sorry, carry on. So the Russians are able to break through the Romanians and they encircle the Sixth Army. They're not bothered because there's a standard German tactic for that. You break out, you reorganize, and you counterattack. That's what you do. And that's what they've been trained to do and what they were good at. And that's what they intend to do. And then Hitler says, government, presumably Hitler, says, no, 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 you stay where you are. You don't attempt to break out. You stay where you are. And you captured Stalingrad. And he broadcasts and he says, Germany is on the Volga and Germany is there to stay. And the generals say, my Lord, no, no, no. Now, in 1940, he'd have listened to the generals. By now, uh, he, he thinks that his tactical and strategic ability is much more than he understands the big picture more than they do. And he insists that, that there they stay. Well, of course, the, the Russians build up, build up, build up. Um, within the, uh, the Stalingrad pocket, um, what about rations and ammunition and, and fuel. And uh, the government says, don't worry, the Luftwaffe will do that. The, the Luftwaffe will, will supply you. Well, the Luftwaffe, the Air Force couldn't. Uh, and the problem with the German Air Force was it was a brilliant tactical Air Force, best in the world at, at supporting troops on the ground. Brilliant. But they never developed a strategic Air Force. They never developed enough bombers to carry a heavy enough load and with enough range to do anything. Now, this is why actually the blitz on london it was awful if you happen to be under it but actually the amount of high explosives they were dropping was tiny compared to what british lancasters were then going to drop on on germany uh, they simply didn't have enough big enough aircraft or aircraft carrying enough load so when stalin and one of the clever things he did stalin right at the beginning of barbarossa he moved most of russian industry behind the urals and the German Air Force simply couldn't get there. They didn't have the range. So the Russians could sit there and turn out things like the T-34 tank. Um, very simple tank, but easy to maintain, designed to be maintained by a Russian peasant with a blow lamp and a hammer. Um, and, and the Germans couldn't do anything about it. So when 
Paulus says that he only wants 500 tons a day. As a very experienced staff officer, Paulus knew very well, must have known very well, that what he actually needed was 1,500 tons a day to maintain his troops, Sixth Army, and the bits of the Fourth Panzer Army that were in the pocket. Uh, why did he ask 500? We don't know. He, when he was eventually released from prison, he settled in East Germany, communist East Germany, he died. We don't know. I can only assume that he knew jolly well the Luftwaffe couldn't produce 1,500. So he thought maybe they could produce 500, or perhaps he thought that 500 would be enough to top them up and he would be allowed to break out. Um, the Luftwaffe never managed to provide even 500 tons. Uh, the most they, they managed to deliver, I think, was on Christmas Eve, uh, something like 320 tons. They simply didn't have the aircraft. As the Russians captured the airfields in the pocket, the Luftwaffe were no longer able to land, deliver their stores, and take out wounded. So now they had to airdrop. And of course, there was no petrol left. Um, they, they'd used all the petrol in the um, diesel in the pocket. So the kit had to be manhandled to where it was needed. And all this was, was you know, difficult, took time. The wounded couldn't be flown out. Eventually, the rations were cut and cut, cut again. And eventually, they had to say, sorry, no rations for the wounded. If you're not capable of standing up firing your weapon, you don't get anything, uh, which is a terrible decision. Awfully, I mean, and of course, they, not a decision <laughs> that the generals, what, and Paulus certainly didn't want to do that. I mean, you don't want to starve your own men. But if he's not going to surrender, that's all he can do. Um, Hitler promotes him to field marshal. Uh, he's a colonel general before that, uh, equivalent to full general. Um, and the reason he does that is that no German field marshal has ever surrendered, ever, in the history of German history. And the thought is that um, he'll kill himself rather than surrender. Paulus said to his ADC, uh, Paulus was a Roman Catholic, white Roman Catholic, and he said, I'm not going to kill myself for that Bavarian corporal. Um, eventually, they run out of ammunition. They're called upon to surrender. They, they won't. Uh, the Russians then managed to split the pocket in two. Eventually, no ammunition, no stores, uh, no food. They have no option. Manstein has tried to get them out, uh, and he almost manages, but not quite. Uh, he's he's, uh, he, he's commanding a large uh, army group close. Uh, army how group. close did he get to Stalingrad? Well, he, they were only 25 miles apart. Uh, but the trouble was that... Um, the Sixth Army just did not have the fuel to make that final 25 miles. Manstein, um, Manstein said, told Hitler that he was, he was actually reinforcing them. He had no intention of reinforcing them. He was going to get them out, which was the only sensible military thing to do. Manstein is, in my view, the best general of the war on any side. Uh, I mean, he's a highly competent man, highly competent general. The only general... Better than Hitler, Patton. Oh, Patton, you can't be serious. You can't be serious. You'll be telling me Montgomery was a great general next. Which <laughs> he uh, no, I mean, Manstein knew what he was doing, um, but, but he just couldn't manage it. And uh, 90,000 German soldiers went into the bag. Uh, they weren't released until 10 years after the war, by which time most of them had died through ill treatment, malnutrition. Um, some managed to, I interviewed a, a lovely uh, German uh, a couple of years ago, or some years ago, uh, who'd been a sergeant. And he told me, he was a sergeant, he said, my company commander said, we're not going to surrender, we, we'll, we're going to try and break out. 
they said our company was down to about 40 men by this stage. And they and the company is like, normally how many? Company normally be 120, 140, that sort of size. Um, and they, they, I mean, platoons were down to sort of, platoon would normally be 30, 35, uh, and they were down to sort of six men, six, eight men, because of casualties. And uh, he said, my company commander, who was a lieutenant, said we're going to break out, and we broke up into small groups of half a dozen. He said we got, we did got out on our feet, uh, and we managed to get through the Russian lines. And he told me that um, he and his little group of, of four or five of them all together, uh, they actually walked 300 kilometers until eventually they, um, they, they got, they, they met up with, with some German units. But I mean, it was absolutely appalling. And, and it was in the middle and, of a, a Russian winter as well. So making, yeah, um, I mean, one of the mistakes they'd made was that because the Germans thought that they'd win the whole campaign terribly quickly um they didn't issue the troops with winter clothing initially the luftwaffe did um milch who was the uh, charge of procurement for the luftwaffe the air force he thought ho 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 we're going to be in russia for a lot longer than that and they did have winter clothing um so that that first winter um they had to um appeal to the public in germany to provide so sort of fur coats and all that sort of stuff were, were coming up. Problem was that uh, by the time they got to the troops in front, the better kit had been nicked uh, by the <laughs> the people in the in the uh, line of communication on the back. So so I mean this was this was one of the problems. And Russian winters, I mean you you know you're talking about um, minus. Well, you've been 30, to Siberia. I've been to Siberia. I have never been to Siberia in the winter, and I was supposed to be there um, in January last year. But Black Death Two put a stop to that. Um, there's, you know, there was no movement allowed, and uh, even when you could move out of England or Britain for a bit, uh, the Russians initially were saying, "No, we're not going to let anybody in." And then they said, "We will let you in if you've been vaccinated, but it's got to be by the Sputnik vaccine, which is their vaccine." And then eventually they said, "Well, okay, we're, as long as you're vaccinated." Um, but of course, now uh, all that's been. I don't think we'll be going to Russia uh, or the stands, any of that area for, I think it'll be, it'll be a number of years, even if the war ends tomorrow, it'll be a long time before anybody's prepared. I think, I mean, I'll go, I'm quite happy to go, but I doubt if anyone will want to come with me. That's, that's the problem. Well, yeah, we're in a new cold war, but so, so going back to the tipping point, then had, had Stalingrad gone the other way and they'd bypassed it, got the oil, we, we they knocked the Russians out of the war, and then what sort of nearly well, a million men are, men are charging Russia, back the other way? Yeah, I mean, Russia got 80% of her oil from the Caspian. So, if you've taken the Caspian, uh, you have eventually you have really uh, stopped Russian industry effectively. Uh, so they might well have come to the table at that point. Um, but even if they didn't, uh, with that amount of oil, the German war machine could have kept going forever if you'd like um now this is the one battle that i i am open i think to challenge <laughs> i don't think i'm open to channels channel challenge on the peloponnesian war or the american civil war but i'm open to challenge on this one because administratively getting all those troops down into the caspian um and they actually got as far as what is now the georgian border um administratively Difficult. Uh, they were actually using camel trains at one stage to, to bring up fuel, um, fuel and rations and ammunition, all the rest of it. 
But if um, the whole of or most of Army Group um, B, who were concentrating on Stalingrad, if they'd been available and 4th Panzer Army had been available, so you've got a much stronger force going down. And the Russians, uh, the Germans rather, were brilliant at, at not, you know, uh, they, they could cobble things together. Um, I mean, there were anyway, they were using all sorts of captured vehicles and they were capable of managing to get those vehicles to work despite different servicing schedules and all the rest of it. So I think they would have got to the Caspian. There is an argument for saying that even if that, that administratively they couldn't have got there, I, I think they could, but I'm open to challenge. You know, I don't regard it as a resigning issue if somebody proves that actually the number of vehicles, uh, a number of camels required to produce that amount of food ammunition, petrol, oil, and lubricants wouldn't have done it. Um, it. It's the one that I am open to challenge on. I still think I'm right. I still think I would have, they would have got to the Caspian. But... And if they had, I guess we're looking at a Normandy invasion against a lot more a, a lot more German soldiers. Well, indeed. But why do we invade Normandy? If we'd never invaded Normandy, the Germans would still have lost the war. But the Russians would have got to the Channel. And who knows when they would have gone home again. So I'm quite sure that in the minds of the planners of Normandy, we've got to do this to make sure that the Russians don't get too far into Europe. I don't understand. So if you mean, oh, I think I understand. If 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 we hadn't gone into Normandy, then you, your argument is that the Russians would have kept on going. Yeah. Yes. I mean, assuming that, that Stalingrad happened the way it happened, because that really... Um, that was a tipping point of the war, actually, Stalingrad. Um, and it wasn't so much the, it wasn't the 120,000 dead in the 6th Army and the 90,000 that had gone into the prison camp. And it wasn't the something like 480,000 that had been killed anyway on the Eastern Front. Um, it was, I think, the realisation that they now couldn't win the war. And Munstein says, and he's on record as saying this, now we can only play for a draw. Uh, so I think it was the, the realisation we can't win this war. Um, but but um, so so the Russian steamroller would have come on and come on and come on, pushing the Germans. I mean, the Germans Germans held them back for for two and a bit years. When um, during the Cold War, the people that we in the British Army wanted to talk to were German officers who'd been on the West Eastern Front, because we would say to them, "Look, you held them back with far smaller troops for a long two and a bit years. How did you do it?" because we may have to do the same thing. This is where I have a question for you um, with the modern day invasion of Ukraine. And the Ukrainians have been having a lot of success against tanks with their sort of defensive shoulder held um, bazookas, which anyone can, it seems like they're very easy to use, but does that, has that now made the tank obsolete? I don't With your think military, it, you've got a your your former soldier as well as being a historian, so you've got both yeah. hats you can put on. Yeah, um, I don't think it makes the tank uh, obsolete. I think it makes the tactics that the Russians are using obsolete. Um, I mean, they they they've had, you know, after the Georgian War in two thousand and eight, uh, when the when the Russians invaded Georgia, and it, and of course they won in the end. But it was a cock up. The radios didn't work. The vehicles broke down. Uh, they didn't have enough pilots for the aircraft. Something like eight Russian aircrafts were shot down by the Georgians and they didn't have very much. Um, 
and a huge amount of money, enormous amount of, of Russia's GDP went into modernizing and bringing up to date the army because they realized that, you know, they hadn't got it right. Now, where is that all gone? Uh, you know, huge amounts. Uh, and we can't, I don't see any evidence of it at all. Um, and I only assume, I'm afraid, that it's gone into somebody's back pocket because corrupt, the Soviet army, corruption was enormous, huge. Um, and I suspect it's still still there because that improvement, we don't see that improvement. Now, first of all, of course, it's the wrong time to invade Ukraine because it's a spring thaw. And um, when the ground's frozen, no problem, you can move off roads. Uh, once the spring thaw starts, everything turns to mud. You can't move off the roads. And that's why that great column of tanks, people say, why didn't they get off the road? Well, the answer is they couldn't. <laughs> they did, they bogged in. Um, they still didn't move forward because the Russian logistics system clearly broke down and wasn't able to get enough fuel and rations up to them to enable them to go forward. Um, also, uh, of course, in moving, they're far too close together. I mean, and, and the guns are all pointing ahead. You don't do that. You spread out. Your guns, if you have to stick to a road, one gun to the right, next tank to the and, and so on. And you do not move armour in that sort of country without infantry. It's nonsense. I mean, they're moving tanks through close country. What you do in a case like that is you put infantry uh, ahead and on the side so infantry can flush out any anti-tank ambushes before the armour gets there. Um, so I don't think the tank is obsolete, um, but the sort of tactics the Russians are using uh, is obsolete in, in my view. The great thing about NLO, the um, British anti-tank weapon, it's, it's actually made in, in Northern Ireland, um, and they've been given, I think, 4,000 so far. Um, it's terribly easy to train. The, the first one, this, this one is the NLO, which is slightly uh, more powerful, but it's, it's the same weapon. When I was um, running our recruit training, uh, our recruits, one period, 40 minutes, how to use it. They then went out and they fired at a tank, not at a Russian tank, but at an old tank on a range. So it's terribly easy <coughs> to train somebody. It's quite a complicated weapon, but to, to use it uh, and to train somebody takes really no time at all. Now that's excellent for the Ukrainians because they haven't got time to go off on a six week course or, or whatever. Um, so they can, you can get them around a couple of hours, less probably off you go. And we've seen the success. I mean, a T-74 with its turret blown off. I mean, that is that is one hell of a bang. It really is. But I think, um, yeah, it's the tactics that they've got wrong. Uh, not so much the tank being obsolete. Well, it, it perhaps they'll they'll learn like they did in in the Second World War, and 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 we'll we've, we'll see more to come in Ukraine. But Gordon, this has been fantastic. Thank you. Uh, three different periods of history. Three hugely different periods of history. Uh, now, your books are, are, are wonderful. They're, they're called Tipping Point, aren't they? T t I'll yes. put links in Tipping Point. Now, they're available on Kindle Unlimited, which means that if you have a Kindle and have signed up to Kindle Unlimited, you get Gordon's books for nothing. They, they come for free. Um, otherwise, you can get them on your Kindle. And uh, I think also there's a pay on demand as well, a, a print on demand version. But uh, all these links will be available. Uh, they're fantastic potted histories of the Peloponnesian War, the American Civil War and the Eastern Front. So highly recommended. Gordon, thank you. Not at all. Thank and, you very much. Well, I, I look forward to hearing about a successful trip to Russia. 
Well, I hope so, but I mean, I, I just don't see it happening. Uh, but if anyone is interested in my views on the Ukraine, um, it's uh, it's on my website um, for free, and they've just got to click on on the Ukraine flag, and they can get twenty minutes of me. They can disagree with me; they may think I'm talking rubbish, but but that's my view as a historian, as a, and as a soldier. So combining the combining the wonderful, Gordon. I'll put that link in on our uh, uh, on our uh, on the in the show notes as well. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you have it. You are now armed with three different viewpoints that you can employ next time you have a chat about history with someone. And you can say how the world would have been different had three events in history. In last week's episode, Gordon discussed the Peloponnesian War and the American Civil War. And then this week the Eastern Front and the Second World War and the Battle of Stalingrad. Now, I personally, if you were to ask me, I'm unconvinced by the Peloponnesian War one, but I am the other two, even though Gordon says Stalingrad is the one he's willing to have a debate about. But I just think that with the Peloponnesian War, which was discussed in our previous episode, and if you haven't listened to I recommend that, I'm just a little bit unconvinced because there's a lot of history that happens between 404 BC when the Peloponnesian War ends and Philip II of Macedon's rise 50, 60 years later because there was another city-state that we didn't discuss that rose up and there's a great new book, I'll put this in the show notes as well, Thebes. The new book is written by Paul Cartledge, the legendary Paul Cartledge. And he's written a book about Thebes. And it's a city that was destroyed by Alexander the Great. Now, coming up, we've got a number of fantastic guests. And one special guest, which I can't reveal the name of yet. But our other guest, we've got Giles Milton. He's going to be talking about Berlin after the Second World War and Berlin airlift and the Cold War, the beginning of the Cold War. And we've also got Gavin Mortimer, who's going to be talking about David Sterling, the chap who founded the SAS. And it's not going to be your usual, oh, this is the SAS and they are fantastic, which I'm sure there will be a little bit of that. But it's more about David Sterling. And he's exposing Sterling in a way that has not happened before. And just to give you an indicator... Gavin's new book is called The Phony Major. So I do hope you can join me for those. They're coming up. And just one final request. If you could subscribe, I would be hugely grateful. And without further ado, I will let you go. Thank you and good night.